<laughs> okay, good evening, everyone. So our topic for tonight is Har Hazetim, the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives. And we're going to address it from the perspective of the religious tradition, a historical analysis of the religious tradition, and then more recent centuries, the last 500 years, when the cemetery that we know exists today uh, came to be and what happened to that cemetery. So we don't find the expression Har Hazetim uh, in the Bible, the Mount of Olives. We don't find those words precisely in the Bible anywhere. Yet, we know where the place is, and we know it was referred to by the name Zetim. So let's look in Shmuel Bet, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23. We're in the story of Absalom's rebellion, the merit of Shalom. King David is the boss. His son is a little uppity and wants to take the place over. So he temporarily is successful. And David is forced not to abdicate, but to uh, run away from Jerusalem and flee to the east. What's east of Jerusalem? Harazetim. Okay, so verse says, Everyone was crying a great cry. The king went through the Kidron Valley. Where is the Kidron Valley? It's the lowland that separates between the elevated portion of Jerusalem, the old city, and Mount of Olives, and also Mount Scopus and the like. It's uh, the, low, the lower section between two elevated uh, spots. Well, those who, who were supportive of David were upset that David had to flee for his life. Everyone is going towards the wilderness, towards the Judean desert. What direction is the Judean desert if you're going from Jerusalem? Well, south, but mostly east, east. Okay, now verse 30, verse 30. David went up to the ascent of olives. Notice it doesn't say har hazetim, it says ma'ale hazetim, but it's basically the same thing. It's the ascent of olives. And he's going, and the rest of the verse does not concern ourselves. We go to the next verse 32. David ba'ad harosh. David got up to the rosh. What is a rosh? A head. So let's assume it means in this context, the summit of the mountain or the top of the peak. The commentators explain, ad harosh, begov hei har hazetim, at the top of the Mount of Olives, asher misham, from that vantage point, hayanirem akom ha'aron, the place of the ark was visible. And people would bow down there uh, in the direction of the Har Habayit. So this is something that was not only true in David's time, it would continue to be true for many, many centuries to follow, and especially in the post-Temple era, when the Temple Mount was itself off-limits, but people wanted to look at it from a distance, what was that vantage point? The Mount of Olives. Okay, if you go to the top, and I've been to the top and taken pictures, you know, you look, especially at sunset time, it's very pretty. The sunset is gl- glistening off of the uh, the Dome of the Rock, okay? It's a cemetery, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, but it wasn't always a cemetery. It wasn't always a cemetery. There is another name for the place that is what we call the Mount of Olives, possibly to the northeast corner of the Mount of Olives, and that is the town of Nov. What do you know about Nov? 
What happened to the city of Nob? Who knows their Bible? Correct. Okay, Reb Teddy knows the answer. So the Kohanim had a Mishkan. The Mishkan, after it was with, was in Shiloh, when the Philistines destroyed Shiloh, the Mishkan was transferred to Nob. And it was there for about 13 years before it went to Givon for 44 years. And in this town, there were Kohanim who had rendered aid and assistance to whom? To David. When David was on the run from Saul. And what did Saul's goons do? They wiped out all the Kohanim. Killed them all, 85 Kohanim. So this was a very awful episode. Where is Nob? I'm not entirely sure, but there's a good uh, speculation that the Mount of Olives, or at least a section of the Mount of Olives, the far side, was this town of Nob. Little little townlet. How do you spell that? Nun Bet. Oh. Or there's a Vav maybe or a Dot. Uh, so this would mean that the location had religious significance in deep antiquity. It will again have religious significance in more recent times. That Jews will regard it as something of a holy ground. Holy not only because of people who were buried there, like the righteous were buried there, the Kibrit Sadikim, but because the space in and of itself has great religious significance. Okay. I would think the Christians also. Of course the, the Christians. Of All right. The Mount of Olives is primarily a Christian destination, not really a Jewish one other than for the cemetery. The, the, um, the landmarks are mostly Christian, as we'll see. The churches, yeah. We'll get to why. Okay. So, in the Book of Kings, we find that the Mount of Olives was a location for idol worship. That this was a religious venue, but not necessarily for correct worship along Hebrew or Israelite theological lines, but rather for anybody's worship, including those who uh, have deities that are against our faith. Where do we find this? Well, Shlomo had how many wives? A thousand wives. Okay. And they all were, were, were shiksas. Okay. Most of them. And they were the daughters of kings here and there. L'shem mitzvah. Now what happened? They worshipped the religion of their ancestors not the religion of the Hebrews of the land of Israel. So the Bible tells us, Az Kamosh. He built an altar for Kamosh, the, the uh, deity of Moab. Bahar Asher al What does that mean? Bahar Asher al On the mountain that faces Jerusalem. What? It's got to be to the east. It has to be Harazetim. Undoubtedly so. So Rashi says, Harazetim. Then we go to another section. So they're to the right. Now, when you look at a map, north is up, south is down. What's the right? East, okay? This mountain is known as Har HaMashchit. What is Mashchit? What is Hashchata? Valtashchis. Waste, so destroy. Har HaMashchit is the mountain of destruction. So the, the commentators explain, well, this mountain where the Bible says all the foreign gods were worshipped, the god of Ammon, the god of Moab, all these foreign gods were worshipped by Solomon's wives. All right, it was Har HaMashchit, the real name, according to Rashi and Radak, 
was Har HaMishcha. What is Mashiach? Anointed one. Anointed with what? Oil. oil. So oil comes from olives. Har HaMishcha really is Harazetim. It's another name for it. The Mount of Anointing. But because we're referencing idol worship, paganism, the author of this line of the Bible has a little play on words. Instead of Mishcha, it's Mashchit. Like, for example, we have all throughout the Tanakh, names of, of people who the, the name might have ended with Aleph Lamed or some benign ending. But if they were a bad guy, what do we end it with? Bet Ayin Lamed. Baal, because Baal is a foreign god, like Yerubal. Okay. You also had Nevuchadrezzah. And Nevuchadrezzah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a, as a diminutive. Correct. So, so, so there they had idol worship there and they had baby killings and everything. That's, that's true. The Gay Ben Hinoam was a place of really bad stuff. But I think that was sort of like indigenous Jewish bad stuff. Um, as opposed to the foreign gods, they wanted to keep to the east as opposed to the south. So you're right, the Kidron Valley had its problems, and the Gabon Enoam had its problems. Well, let's now go to Yechezkel. Yechezkel tells us, Vayal kevod Hashem me'al toch ha'ir, vayamod al ha'ar, ashemi kedem la'ir, that the presence of God, the Shechina, is lifted up from the city, and is taken out of the city to mikedem la'ir. What direction is kedem? East. Don't tell me grape juice. All right. So Kedem means east. The tradition tells us, Rashi, Echarabah, the Psikta, that the Shechina removed itself from between the Kruvim, where the Kruvim, above the Ark of the Covenant, and went from one place to one place. It went to 10 different stops along the way as it exiled itself, rendering the temple no longer the house or the abode of God, but rather an empty shell capable of being defeated by the Babylonians, the Romans, whatever. Why is it left? Okay, so because the, the, the Medrash tells us that Hashem was waiting, Shema Yisrael Yatsu Asu. Maybe Israel will repent, but they didn't. So for three years, the Shekhinah is hanging out in the vicinity of Jerusalem on Harazetim, waiting for something favorable to happen, and it just doesn't happen. All right, well, I'm not here to discuss the theology. I'm here to discuss the history. The point is, yes, yeah, well, some of it is a Pasuk and Yecheskel, but the rest of it is Medrash. My point here is that in the, in the imagination of Jewry, forget whether it's actually true, in the imagination of Jewry, Haraz 18 becomes this like surrogate to Jerusalem where God's hanging out just in case Jerusalem can make a comeback. Before it goes off into the, to the yonder, into the wilderness altogether. Okay. We don't know. We're not, we can't really be sure. We can't be sure. Now let's now go to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is discussing what happens in the, uh, in the 5th century BCE, in the early Second Temple times. And let's listen carefully to what this Pasuk has to say. And you tell me what makes sense about it, but what's kind of odd and doesn't make sense about it. Go to the mountain. And bring branches of the olive tree. And branches of the oil tree, which is a different kind of olive tree. And the branches of a myrtle. 
marim in branches of a date palm, avot in the willow, lasot sukot kakatuv, to make sukot as it says in the Bible. What's weird? What, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense about that pasuk? You got four species of the Dalit Minim, but what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? So you would think it should be your way of a lulav with it, but no, it says make sukkot out of it. Make a sukkah, like schach for a sukkah, out of the branches of the Dalit Minim. So this pasuk has, for, for centuries, for millennia, uh, baffled the reader, like what's really going on here, but the point is, what's the real point? That the Jerusalemites could, within close proximity, go to some mountain and grab for themselves what? A whole lot of olive branches. And what brand, What mountain is that? Har Hazetim. Why was it called the Mount of Olives? Because there were a lot of olive trees there. When does that cease to exist? I mean, after all, today, if you go to Mount Zetim, you'll find Yassel Rosenblatt, a kever. You won't find an olive branch. All right, you'll find Menachem Begin, but you won't find an olive branch. When does it cease to be an actual Har Hazetim? Well, let's take a look. So if we go to the New Testament, and in this uh, subject matter, the New Testament actually plays an important role in in analyzing uh, the past. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. So he's coming from the east. From the wilderness and goes over the Mount of Olives, the little Beth Pages, a little village there, and they're coming to Jerusalem from the easterly direction. Matthew 24, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they want to know about the, the, the end of time, the apocalypse. And where is Jesus hanging out? He likes to hang out on Haraz 18. Then, Matthew 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, meaning after they did their worship service and they had some kind of davening in the city, they went out to to the yonder. But Mark 11 is the key. um, uh, Okay, John 8, chapter 8, verse 1. And every man went unto his house and Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, meaning people were staying in the hotels or in the various habitations within the city. They had a, a lodging place where they would rest their head for the night. But their guy, Jesus, he didn't do that. He preferred the fresh air of outside the cloistered parts of the city on the mountain where there are trees and the wind is blowing and you can take a nice little stroll. He did not like to stay within the bounds of the walled city. He preferred. So that's where we're going to see bad things happen to him. Yeah. Now, how far away was Har Hazetim from Yerushalayim, from the, from, the, from the wall. Well, you could measure it today, but the walls of today are not the same as the walls of yesteryear. The city is actually further north now than it was back then. It was more of a north-south back then. Now it's more of a square or a rectangle. Um, so we find in Acts ch- uh, chapter 1, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. How far is a Sabbath day's walk? 2,000 amas. 2,000 amas. 2,000 amas. So here we find, by the way, a reference to a dindarabonon in the New Testament. This is a very, very rare thing. Just from a Judaic studies point of view, we're always looking, what's the earliest reference to this or that rabbinic enactment? 
And here we find in the New Testament the notion of a Sabbath day's boundaries. Very fascinating. All right, whatever it is, it roughly corresponds to 2,000 amos. About a kilometer, about uh, 3,000 feet, 3,500 feet, something about. No, no, less, less, considerably less than a mile. Miles is 5,280, but uh, it's about six tenths of a mile. Uh, yeah, about 16 to 24, 18 to 24 inches. Okay, so walking from here to Farakaway is allowed under the halacha because the tuchum of a city only begins at the end of the ha- inhabited portion of the city. However, if you walk from here to 878, there's a house every 50 feet. So it, you never get to the end. There, there aren't five towns. There's only one town. But that also means you heard it here. That there was no residential area from David right. to... to uh, yeah, outside the wall, there was a no man's land. Nobody, nobody there, yeah. Okay, so now we go to Josephus. And Josephus mentions that Mount of Olives was the place that Absalom went to and that the Mount of Olives is five furlongs away from the city. I don't do horse racing, so I don't know what a furlong is, but there were five furlongs, eighth of a mile, good. So five-eighths of a mile uh, from the city to the Mount of Olives. But then in another section, he says that the legions of Rome, when they were besieging the city of Jerusalem, were on the Mount of Olives, they were six furlongs away. Now, wait a second, is it five furlongs or is it six? And the answer is, the base of the mountain is five, but as you go further up the hill, you're further away. You could be six or more furlongs away. Now, this is when the Mount of Olives ceases to have olives. Who chops down all the trees? Titus. Titus is building siege works around Jerusalem, and that requires a lot of wood. As it was the case, wood was a very scarce commodity. We know this from the Mishnah, because the Mishnah tells us there was this thing called the Korban Eitzim, the, the wood offering, wood sacrifice, that nine prominent families of, of, of Israel would bring annually, uh, because back in the olden days, in the beginning of the Second Temple, there was an insufficient supply of wood to burn uh, for fuel in the Mizbeach, and these families donated a sacrifice of wood, and every year they would repeat that donation. But it was special because wood was a scarce commodity. So now the Romans, they need wood for the siege works. They chopped down all the trees in the Mount of Olives. Now Harazetim is a dead mountain. Okay. What about halachically? What uh, rituals of Judaism are done on the Mount of Olives? Well, let's find out. So first we have the para aduma, the red heifer. So the red heifer ceremony is a very rare occurrence. According to the Talmud, there only were either seven or nine red heifers ever uh, burned in the history of Judaism, whose ashes were used for purification from corpse impurity. And the Torah says, So take for yourselves an unblemished red heifer. Then, what does Elazar HaKohen do? Elazar the high priest, because Aaron was already dead at this point. Take it out of the camp. So out of the camp in the, the wilderness, remember, what was the camp in the wilderness? There was the, the Machane Shechina, the tabernacle area. There was the Machane Levia, which was around that where the Levites lived. And there was Machane Yisrael around that where all the rest of the Israelite tribes lived. Michutz Machane means outside of all of that, okay, be in the, into, the, into the yonder, into the wilderness. Yeah, well, outside of the uh, uh, correct. 
Now, if we compare that with the Beit HaMikdash, temple days in Jerusalem, so the Machane Shechina was the courtyard, the Azara, which included the outdoor area and the Heichal, the building of the, of the Kodesh and Kodesh Kodeshim. The Machane Leviyah was the entire Harabite, the Temple Mount. And the Machane Yisrael was the entire walled city of Jerusalem. What is Michutz Machane entirely outside, beyond the walls? In what direction? To the east, to the east. And the red heifer ceremony had to be done in such a fashion that the person doing the slaughter could see through the gate all the way to the Kodesh Kodashim. So the angle had to be perfect, that you had a, a bird's you know, a view um, all the way to the inside. Well, in order to avoid contaminating inadvertently the people participating in this ritual, they had to build a bridge, an arced bridge from the, Har- from the Harabait to the Harazetim. So that in case there was a dead body buried somewhere underneath, and by the way, there are plenty of dead bodies there because there's a, there's a Muslim cemetery there. There's all sorts of cemeteries there now. But even back then there may have been. They built this arches and a road over the arches so that even if you walked over it, you were not contracting corpse impurity. I'm not going to go into the technicalities of why that's true. So here we see that the Harazetim played a very important role in a rare but crucial and critical ceremony that uh, took place in temple times. One can become Tomei Mesrugai? Yes, but only through direct contact, not through Ohel, not through being under the same roof. Okay. So, another example um, of, a, of a mitzvah that's done in connection with Har Habayit was Rosh Chodesh. Okay, so you mentioned that the in the old days, before there was the fixed calendar, there was the bonfire system. The bonfire system was effective because it was fast and you could go from mountain to mountain in one night and get the word out into the pretty deep diaspora. Of course, this bonfire system ultimately uh, failed because sectarian groups deliberately set fires at the wrong night to fool everyone to advance their purposes. And we could spend a whole, a whole evening discussing which group that was and why they did it and for which holiday, but it's not for now. Um, suffice it to say that the first mountain was Har HaMishcha, the mountain of the anointing oil, meaning Har HaZetim. And it went further north, and it gets to the Golan Heights and, and beyond. Okay, another example of a mitzvah that was associated with Har with Harazetim. Does anyone know? Okay. All right. So I I, I wasn't going to refer to that one tonight, but yes. So I wrote a long article, and it's in my book, the long road to the long road to Azazel, uh, for Pasha Sacharemos. Okay. Well, uh, I wrote that maybe five six years ago. It was one of one of the most important articles I ever wrote, in which the the road to to, to the cliff which the goat goes over the cliff. So according to the Mishnah, was 12 uh, mil, which is 24, uh, 2,000 amas times 12, 24,000 amas, which is pretty deep into the wilderness, was pretty pretty far, somewhere near Ma'ale Adumim. Okay, so they, they, they think they know the exact spot. But originally, where was the spot? It was just past Harazetim, and Mount Scopus, which is basically one the same mountain, it's along a ridge. And there was a town, El Azaria, which is an Arab little village, 
that was the end of civilization, and beyond that was the wilderness, the Judean desert. The original version of Azazel was you would go that far, let it go into the wilderness, and turn around and come home. But again, Harazetim played a role in this ceremony. No, you, a person would take it and then release it, not throw it off the cliff. The off the cliff was a later invention. Okay, so now, no, 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 it's not that. It's not that far. So the, the last item of a mitzvah observance that has to do with Harazetim is erev Pesach. Let me ask you a question: When is chametz forbidden under the Torah on erev Pesach? According to Torah law, when is chametz forbidden? It's forbidden in the hour when the Koban Pesach can be brought. It says in the Torah, So thou shalt not slaughter uh, over the Chametz the blood of my sacrifice. So when can the Koban Pesach be brought? In the afternoon. So at noon, under Torah law, Chametz is off limits. What about before noon? What's the rabbinic enactment? Okay, so the rabbinic enactment is, lest you be confused with the clocks on a cloudy day, because there are no clocks in antiquity, you're just looking up at the sky and looking for the sun and figuring out where it is positionally in the sky. Two hours before halachic noon, you can no longer eat chametz. You know, last time for eating chametz, 10.43 a.m. But one hour before halachic noon, 11.53 a.m., whatever it is, you can't own the chametz. So the sale of chametz in modern times is done by the communal rabbi in that fifth hour when you can't eat it anymore, but you can still own it. That's when the rabbi sells it to the custodian or whomever. And when the burning ought to be, to, to be done. So the question is, if you don't have clocks, well, how do the people of Jerusalem know whether they can still eat, still own, have to burn? What do they do with their chametz? They're confused. So we're told that there were two signs of how to know what, what, what the hour was. One of them has nothing to do with Harazetim, and the other one does. Let's do the, fir- the first one, which has nothing to do with Harazetim. The first one was that on the 13th of Nisan, it was like Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving is the fourth Thursday in November in America. So Thanksgiving in Israel in the old days was the day before Erev Pesach. Why? Because Thanksgiving involves both matzah and chametz. It says in the Torah, the korban toda has 40 loaves, 30 of which are matzah, 10 of which are chametz. And how many days do you have to eat the korban toda? Okay, you have one day, but you have the whole day. So if you were to try to bring a korban toda on Erev Pesach, you would not be allowed to have the chametz loaves after noon or after the fourth hour of the rabbinic law. And there's a rule in, in Kudshim, in sacrificial law, that if the clock is a factor in truncating the window of opportunity for eating the food, then you can't bring the korban. So lo and behold, what? I can't bring a korban toda when? On Erev Pesach. I also can't bring it when? On Erev Yom Kippur. Why? Because I can't eat it at night, because you have to fast at night. So that's why we skip what? In Pesukit Zimra, 
Mizmor Letoda on Erev Pesach and Cholamoid Pesach and Erev Yom Kippur. Now you know what, what the rules of Pesukah is Zimra. So what they did was there were so many people bringing Todas on 13th of Nisan because it was like Thanksgiving Day that there was a lot of leftovers. Nobody could finish all that bread. It's like the, the supply of lafas that, you know, these uh, falafel joints with uh, come Pesach time, they got a lot of leftovers. So what do you do with it? You can't eat. You have to, you're going to have to destroy it. So what they did was in the temple, there was a portico, you know, the, the rooftop, and people could see it from a distance. They put two of the loaves, the chametz, the, the lafas, on the portico. When the fourth hour ended and you could no longer eat chametz, they took away one of the two. When the fifth hour ended and you could no longer even own chametz and it was time to burn everything, they took away the second one, nothing left. So from the distance, you could see if you were a Jerusalemite, what time it was based upon the lafas. All right. Maybe if you weren't too, if that far away, you couldn't see it. So now we go to the second version. If the, if the lafas on the portico were too small for you to see, what about seeing a cow on Har Hazetim? So there were two cows plowing a furrow on Har Hazetim on the morning of Erev of, of Ere Pesach. And when the fourth hour ended, they took away one cow. And when the fifth hour ended, they took away a second cow. So based upon looking at Haraz 18 from your vantage point in Jerusalem, you knew whether you could eat chametz, own chametz, or burn chametz. Yeah, but how did they know? How did they know to take away Okay, the so the, the, temple, the temple administrators had a better awareness of the clock, of the time, than the, the, your average uh, Amaretz, who didn't know too much. Right, yeah, they're the keeper of the clock. They know what to do. All right. Now, there are a few other things that we could mention about Haraz 18 from the Talmud, but I'll leave that out. The last thing I'll mention is in Book of Zechariah. So Book of Zechariah, we find that the mountain of Haraz 18 in, in the apocalypse is going to split in half. It's going to split in half in an east-west direction, leaving a northern side and a southern side. So I was looking in some of the academic scholarship on, on Book of Zechariah, and they say there really was like an earthquake that one time split the mountain in half, which is why there's a fissure in the mountain, which is where the road is, blah, blah, blah. I, don't, I couldn't understand the science behind it, but it, it seems to indicate that there was, uh, you know, tectonic plates moving. And so the mountain does exhibit some uh, kind of, of, a, of a, a gap inside. Uh, in any event, the, the Midrash took this in a lot of different directions and said that out of that gap in the mountain, Who's going to emerge? All the dead people are going to come out. So all the people who were buried in Mitzrayim, in Europe, in Westchester, okay, they're going to come from the, the Mechilos, they're going to go through the tunnels and come out of the tunnels, Harazetim. So that's going to be the mountain of the redemption and the, the resurrection. Okay, fine. So yeah. you don't roll. So you don't roll. All right. So that's in Bracious Rabbah, in Medrash. Okay. So now let's talk about uh, the, the what exists. So the the earliest okay, let's find out. So originally, the dead of Jerusalem were buried in what we call the Silwana Necropolis, not far from Ir David, not far. Silwana Necropolis, yeah, and that's on the southern ridge of what we call Harazetim or Haramashchit. It still exists there. It's a, something of a tourist attraction. Inside, inside, inside the caves, yeah. yeah. So that was the earliest version of a Jerusalem cemetery in the vicinity of Harazetim. But uh, 
over time, it came to be used more thoroughly. The modern cemetery beginning in the 16th century with the Ottoman conquest. So what about the, 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 the attractions that you find there? The Tomb of the Prophets. So the Tomb of the Prophets are for which prophets? Who are these prophets? Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi. According to tradition, now when this tradition developed, we can't be so certain, but Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, who are the Nevi'im Acharonim, the final prophets, are buried in the so-called Tomb of the Prophets on Haraz 18. Well, in fact, this tomb only dates from the first century BCE. So Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi lived in the sixth century BCE. This ain't them. But the, the, the legend continues. This property was bought by the Russians in 1882. Now, remember what I said about the Russians and their obsession with Jerusalem. They built the Russian compound. They built a bunch of churches. They wanted to take over and be the dominant European power wielding its influence in the city. So in 1882, they bought the Tomb of the Prophets and they tried to build the church. But the Ottomans would not allow them to do so. Why? Because other faiths also considered this to be a holy place, the Jews and even the Muslims. So for that reason, no icons were allowed on the Tomb of the Prophets. If you go to, to Haraz team today, go to the place they call Tomb of the Prophets, you'll see there's no, there's no crosses there. There are crosses everywhere else, but not there because the Ottomans didn't allow it. Okay, what about the Garden of Gethsemane? So the Garden of Gethsemane is uh, really a small little spot. When you're going on the road from the Kotel, from the Shar Hashpot, the Dung Gate, down and then back around. So the Garden of Gethsemane is where the road curves to the the right. And then you go across the valley and you go up the hill to to the the cemetery. That little garden, and there are trees there. They have some bushes and some shrubbery. And if you go on an interfaith trip, which I did not that long ago, you stop there and they tell you that this is where Jesus was betrayed and he got arrested. Um, So it's a site for Christians. What about the tomb of Absalom? Tomb of Absalom. Well, Absalom's not buried there. It dates back only from the first century of the common era. And forget about how old this tomb is. What's much more important is the purpose that it served. What was the purpose of the tomb of Absalom? Well, there's a section in the Torah about which we say, Drosh v'kabel sachar. What does that mean? Drosh v'kabel sachar. Expound upon it and receive reward. Because it's only going to be something we learn, not something we ever do. And what is that? Ben, sorer, umore, the rebellious child. Bible says, what do you do? Kill him. All right, so that's terrible. All right, it never happened. The Talmud says it never happened. So the tradition was, bring your, your rebellious child to the tomb of Absalom and tell him the story of what happened to Absalom, and that'll scare him straight. Better than when Hafter took us in 11th grade to Rikers, and, and they scared us straight. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, I forget. Mrs. Taven took us to Rikers in 11th grade. This is 1997. And uh, trust me, the, the, the boys from, from Woodmere and Cedars, they learned their lesson. Okay, so now that was Tomb of Absalom. He died. He, his hair got caught in the thicket because he had wild hair, like Fabio, you know. And, uh, and, and he got caught, and then he was shot with the, with, with the with arrows, and he died. Okay, what about Zechariah's tomb? So Zechariah's tomb, Mount of Olives. Which Zechariah are we talking about? Not Zechariah the prophet, because Zechariah the prophet is in the tomb of, so-called tomb of the prophets. 
So this is Zechariah the high priest, Zechariah ben Yehoyada, who was stoned to death by King Yehoash. However, this was first claimed in the year 1215. Before that, nobody ever said this was Zechariah's tomb. It was made up in medieval times. The reality is it dates from the first century of the Common Era. So you see a theme here that tombs that are from about 2,100 years ago or 2,000 years ago are being retrojected onto biblical times and said, oh, this is a holy spot, you know, so-and-so died and was buried here. All right, what about the Ascension Monastery, which is towards the top in the neighborhood of Atur? Ascension Monastery is both a mosque and a church. Why does, why does a thing like that happen? They both accept it. Okay, so like why is a, a synagogue and a mosque? Because, because everybody wants it. And at one point or another, this religion held you know, sway, was dominant. And then, the, and then they lose out and somebody else comes in, but they can't knock out the original guy altogether. Yeah. Okay, so since, thir- since the year 1322, the Jews have also claimed that this is the burial place of Chulda Hanaviyah, Chulda the prophetess. Now, Chulda the prophetess is not exactly the most famous character in the Bible, but if you know your Bible, you know Chulda Hanaviyah. The fact that in the year 1322, they start saying she was buried here means what? I mean, she's not buried there. I mean, someone made it up. So again, this is a common theme. People are finding locations on a generally speaking holy place and saying so-and-so biblical character is here. Okay. So is this a result of the Crusades that people had retrofitted these? Uh, so uh, you're saying 14, you're saying 14. Yeah, the, the Crusades probably do play a role in the Christian, uh, the, the, the Christian aspect of this phenomenon. Why Jews engage in it as well, I can't be certain why. I don't know. I know in modern times why Jews engage in it for tourist reasons. You know, all sorts of spots in the West Bank, you know, in Hebron, you know, that Rutamovia is buried here, or Eglon is buried here, or Ehud is buried here. A lot of that is just to give business to the tour guides. But 700 years ago, why they said such things, I don't know. I don't know. Now, what about more modern times and the churches? So in 1888, the Russian church of Mary Magdalene with the golden cupolas Okay, the, 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 the nice looking ones that look like they're right out of Moscow. Okay, that was built by Tsar Alexander III in 1888 as part of the Russian Romanov dynasty's broader efforts to put their thumb on the scales and dominate Christian Jerusalem. Uh, no, they, they, so the Ottomans had to allow them to build the church. We'll see that they did buy. Um, well, the, 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 there are certain locations that were, that were purchased. For example, the Russian compound was purchased outright. But on Haraz team, land typically was not bought. It was reserved for this or that religious usage. Is that the time when the Ottomans were capitulating? Yes, general place? capitulations after the Crimean War. Okay, so the Pater Noster Church, which is towards the top, was claimed by the French. The French claim that back to Crusader times, to Byzantine times, we have possession, ownership over this spot. Well, the Ottomans never really recognized that, and neither did the British. But the bottom line is the French church was there, the Catholic church. When Israel was established in 1948, Israel made a certain uh, assertion about its existence, that Israel is not the successor state 
to any prior administration. Okay, that's a very important point. You know, for example, Germany, West Germany was the successor to Nazi Germany. Whether it wanted to be or not, it was. Right? Usually, you know, the, the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic are successors to Czechoslovakia. You, you agree that whatever international treaties were incumbent upon your predecessor regime is also incumbent upon you. Israel rejected that idea that it's not a successor to the British Mandate or to the Ottoman Empire. It exists like yesh uh, me'ayin, ex nihilo. And therefore, whatever international agreements existed previously don't count. Well, if that's the case, then what about these churches that are claimed by European powers? Who owns the land? Who owns what, What's the arrangement? Israel has to negotiate them from scratch, from scratch, which is why relations with the Catholic Church were so problematic. And there was no deal with the Vatican until 1993. But what about with France? in relation to this church and to a few other places around the country? The answer is that there was, a, that there was an agreement reached. In 1948, the Fisher-Chevelle Agreement was reached, but it was never ratified by the Knesset. So technically it wasn't really legal. But this agreement accepted French control over this church. And as a result, the French could complain whenever something was bad, whether there was vandalism or rock throwing, they had a right to complain. They claim to have owned it from, from long ago. But still, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So is that any element of Dayan's capitulation and giving in uh, to the Wakf? You could argue it's the same sort of thing. That uh, a, de- a desire to retain the status quo, but a conscious decision to choose which parts of the status quo to retain and to reject it where you feel comfortable. The next item was the Augusta Victoria Hospital. So Augusta Victoria Hospital, which is that big building at the top, uh, was built between 1907 and 1914. Who built it? The German Empress built it in order for it to be a center for the German Protestant community in Ottoman Palestine. It was a very uh, grand edifice, and it had a hospice, a hospital, and a, a, a hostel, like a hotel. Well, this was, because it was such a nice building, the home of the British High Commissioner from 1920 to 1927. So the good Jew Herbert Samuel, who was the High Commissioner from 20 to 25, he lived at the Augusta Victoria. Afterward, where did the High Commissioner move to? To Government House, which is Arnona, Ramona Natsiv. Okay, Um, but that's later during the British era. In the 1930s, the guest house, the hostel, was Kishmo Kainhu, hostile, okay? Jews were not allowed. Why were Jews not allowed? Ostensibly to retain the Christian character of the institution, but also bear in mind who controls Germany in the 1930s. It's a Nazi era. So that's why Jews were barred from the Augusta Victoria because it was a Germanic institution. Over time, it became just a Palestinian hospital. And it's one of the major uh, East Jerusalem Arab hospitals. Okay. What about the Church of All Nations? So that's the one with a nice facade. When, you, when you're looking to the, uh, from the old city eastward and you see the, the, the golden uh, domes of the, French, of, the, of, the, of the Russian church. So the colorful tiles in the front. So that's the Church of All Nations with the scenery, with, with a, a, like a Jesus scene in the front. That was built by the Roman Catholic Church in 1924 and is still a functioning church. After 1948, what happened? So 
The Jordanians desecrated the Mount of Olives Cemetery. The tombstones were famously used to pave roads in East Jerusalem and to build latrines. So here, sacred items, tombstones, are used for grotesque purposes as a deliberate snub of Judaism. So as much as King Abdullah and King Hussein after him were not the worst enemies of Israel and not the worst of the anti-Semites, still their, their government, their country engaged in a great sacrilege against our faith. All right. Israel com- Good, that was the next, the next point. Israel complained about this in 1954 to the UN General Assembly. But that was the same year that the Jordanians and the Iraqis complained about what? We learned about it two weeks ago. Har Sion, that the Jews had transformed Kever David, which had been an Islamic shrine, into a Jewish holy place. So the, the Arabs are complaining about the Judaization of Jerusalem, and the Jews are complaining about the destruction of Jewish Jerusalem, the classic Jewish Jerusalem. So complaining on both sides. In 1964, the Seven Arches Hotel was built. The Seven Arches Hotel is a, is a Palestinian... Huh? Continental. Continental, correct, yeah. So it was, uh, it was a Palestinian hotel, and the first gathering of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, was held in that hotel in late 1964. Okay. After the Six-Day War, so Israel returns to Harazetim and wants to reclaim the cemetery, spruce it back up a little bit, make it look nice, because it had been roughly basically destroyed, uh, and build on the premises. One of the things that's built on the northern side of Harazetim is BYU. What's BYU? Brigham Young University, not yeshiva, okay, the Mormon yeshiva. So Brigham Young University, the Mormon University, builds its Jerusalem campus on Mount of Olives. With the the consent of the state of Israel, with one proviso, no proselytism. Now remember, with the Mormons, that's always a tricky issue because they're always baptizing dead people and making lists of Holocaust uh, victims. So they have a mishigas about about baptizing everybody. But the deal was you can have your your yeshiva there, your, 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 your seminary, but you can't proselytize in Israel. Yeah, probably, uh, but uh, not necessarily knowingly. But I'm sure I'm sure there are graves anyway there. For Kohanim. So that I'm sure they, they had to figure out what was a, a, a reasonable route for Kohanim to take. But the main thoroughfares are going right over cemeteries now. After the Six Day War. So press ahead a little bit, go to the 1970s, 1980s. Plots on Haraz Eitim are extraordinarily expensive. And they're getting even more expensive because there are fewer and fewer plots available. So where are people being buried? You know, Haram and Uchot, elsewhere, outside, outside Jerusalem and Beit Shemesh and so on. But those who wanted a spot in Haraz Eitim for top dollar, they could get it. Well, uh, next time we meet, we'll discuss Harat Sofim. And after that, we'll discuss Har Herzl. Har Herzl becomes the national cemetery where the VIPs of modern Israel are supposed to be buried. But not all of the VIPs choose to be buried on Har Herzl of the various prime ministers who are not buried there. So uh, David Ben-Gurion is buried at Stavokar in the Negev. Ariel Sharon buried on his, his ranch. 
okay, and Menachem Begin. So Begin wanted to be buried on Harazetim, Mount of Olives. Why? Because he had his buddies there. His, uh, his heroes were Feinstein, Mayor Feinstein, and Moshe Barazani. The two of them died in the prison, okay, holding the grenade between them and committing suicide rather than dying, uh, uh, being hanged uh, by a noose by, Brit- by the British. Now, they, their goal was in the process to kill a few British guards, but they didn't because Rabbi Levin came to visit them, the prisoner's rabbi, and so they weren't going to kill him in the process. They had to wait till he left. And so once he was gone, then there were no more British soldiers in the vicinity. They just took their own lives rather than be executed. So they were considered the great heroes. And by the way, politically, Begin had used their memory in his uh, electioneering. And I, if you recall from a couple of years ago, when we did Israeli politics. I actually played for you on, from the YouTube clip his speech in which in 1981, he says how, you know, Barazani was a Sephardi, Feinstein was an Ashkenazi, and Ashkenazim and Sephardim are achim, we're brothers and we love each other, and the Labour Party is just a bunch of Ashkenazi elitists and they want to make fun of the Sephardim, but we in the Likud Likud Party, we've come all together, Kulana Bayachad, so he would always invoke their memory as an example of the unity of Israel. And so he was buried right in between them when he died in March of 1992. Um, I remember I was 11 years old at the time, and that was the first Israeli funeral I remember watching on American television, that they showed clips of it like on nightly news that Menachem Begin had died, and they showed his funeral. Of course, three years later, the, the, the big funeral with Rabin, which was wall-to-wall coverage, but I remember distinctly watching on the nightly news in America uh, Be- Begin's funeral from Harazetim. Okay, now after Begin died, there was a problem. If you recall, about seven or eight months later, a swastika was painted on his tombstone. And it was, it was regarded as a terrible lapse of security that Harazetim just did not have good security. So the government under Rabin made an effort to improve security. How was that? The police station, yeah. But even still... It was regarded as insufficient. So throughout the early 2000s, I remember these campaigns by the Harazetim Committee for the, the World Committee for Harazetim, and most of these people live in Nassau or Queens, uh, you know, the World Committee, to, to have better security for the visitors to Harazetim. And I hope they've been successful. I mean, I've been there three, four times in the last decade, and I, I never felt unsafe in the cemetery or getting to the cemetery. The only time I ever felt unsafe was about two trips ago, I went to the top. I walked through the cemetery to the top. And then I wanted to come around and go back by the, by the churches. But that's a big no-no. You can't do that because it's a very dangerous Arab neighborhood at the top. You just got to go straight back down. You can't go around and about. Uh, some, like some 10-year-old Arab kid playing soccer gave me a dirty look and like gave me, what are you doing here? And that was enough to scare me and go back down. Uh, right, so you see a big flag. The flag is waving and there are some Israeli families who live to the top and to the right. Okay. Well, who's buried on Harazetim? In the time we have left, just to give you a flavor of the different uh, sectors of Am Yisrael, Klal Yisrael, that find their eternal repose uh, on this mountain. Well, you have rabbis, of course, like the Bartanura or the Orachaim, from the commentaries on the Chumash and the Tanakh. You have Yehuda HaChassid, 
Remember, Yehuda Chassid came in 1700 and died like three days after he got to Yerushalayim. Sadly, and that was, that was the reason why his community was not successful. Uh, you have more recent rabbis, like Rav Nassim Svi Finkel, the author of Slabatka, who was, uh, uh, died in 1927. You have not secular Jews necessarily, but famous Jews of the Zionist movement. Henrietta Zold died in 1945, the founder of Hadassah. You have Eliezer ben Yehuda, the founder of modern Hebrew, dies in 1924. You have Shai Agnon, the great Nobel laureate of Israel, dies in 1970. Rav Shlomo Gorin dies in 1994, the former chief rabbi of Israel. So notice, of course, you had to either die before 1947 or after 1967. If you died in between, you're out of luck. You're somewhere else. If you died, you're out of luck. Well, everybody dies eventually. Okay. But there's one more name I'll mention. A very curious and arguably nefarious character who died under mysterious circumstances in 1991. Who am I referring to? Huh? No. Rudolf Kastner was shot to death in not very mysterious circumstances in 1957. We know he was assassinated by Jews. We know who did it. Okay, huh? Any, 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 any guesses? Okay, I'll give you another hint. His daughter was in the news a lot in the last two years. No. I'll give you another hint. His daughter is in jail right now and probably will be for the rest of her life. Angela Davis. No. So Robert Maxwell, the father of Jelaine Maxwell... Of, 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 of Epstein fame, Robert Maxwell, who was, pro- who was probably killed by the Mossad uh, by being drowned or fell off his boat, fell off his boat, was given a hero's uh, um, funeral on Har Hazetim by the Israeli government. After they killed him, probably. Now, remember, he had been a, he had been a gun runner for, for the Haganah in 1947, had been a spy for Israel, had been arguably a spy against Israel. He knew all the secrets. He was a double, triple, quadruple agent of all kinds. Believe whatever you want. But most likely he was killed by Israel. And the arrangement was to cover their tracks, give him a hero's welcome, put him a Mount of Olives and call it a day. So he's there also. I was at his grave the last time I went to Israel. I was curious about that. Uh, and the other one, of course, famously, is Yassel Rosenblatt, the famous Chazin, who died while in Israel, while doing a, a movie about Eretz Israel, which was supposed to make him a lot of money because he was in terrible debt over having mishandled his finances throughout his life. So, so we, um, he was very, he was extraordinarily generous, but too generous for his own good. So we, a couple of years back, we did biographies. We did Yassel Rosenblatt. I explained how he davened his last Shabbos in front of Rav Cook in the Churva synagogue, and they say he sang like an angel, and then he died a couple of days later, and was buried as a team. So that, that that takes us to the end of tonight's session. Next time, in two weeks, we will discuss Harhat Sofim, Mount Scopus. It'll be a discussion of the history of Hebrew University, but uh, not just Hebrew University, but the mountain itself, and what other usage uses the mountain might have had. Okay, so stay tuned in two weeks. Male and female in the